Believe it or not, we just have three weeks left in Colossians, including this week. Then we'll be returning back to the middle of Genesis, where we left off a few months ago. By way of review here, remember some of the themes with me of Colossians that Jesus Christ is supreme above all. There's none above Him, none before Him. The song says, all of time in His hand. He's created all things, and He is the preeminent one. He has first place. We have been associated with this King of kings and Lord of lords by His death and His resurrection. What a supreme privilege that is, that we would be found in Christ. And yet that is the truth that Paul presents in a very realized way through the book of Colossians, that we have been buried and we have been raised with Him as demonstrated by our baptism. And there have been many applications of those truths, haven't there been? That being dead to the old ways means that we would no longer adopt the practices and beliefs and habits of the old life. We would shed those. And it means that we would have a new thought, a new way of thinking, that our minds would be set on the very mind of Christ Himself, that we would look above and not be so consumed with the thoughts of earth as we are the thoughts of heaven. But being associated with Christ not only affects what goes on in our minds, it affects what goes on in our members, with our bodies, how, our activity. And so we put off the old deeds, the deeds of the flesh. Those have no part in this new humanity that Christ has originated, is sustaining, and is the end of, is the head of. And so we put off in chapter 3, Fornication and uncleanness and anger and wrath, all of that has been gone, and instead we're putting on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Christ himself. And so our thoughts then turned in the middle of chapter 3 to what it looks like to put on the virtues of Christ. We examine him, we look to him. Who is he? What is his character? And he is full of tender mercies and kindness, humility and meekness, long suffering. He's born with us and forgiven us. And so we pattern our lives toward each other in those same ways. Right? We put on the virtues of Christ. So where does Paul go from here? Well, verse 17 was the last verse of the previous text, and it's helpful as a transition verse. He said, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This all-encapsulating net, too broad for any of us to escape at any moment in time with any thought or any deed, everything is to be taken captive to worship Jesus Christ. And so he moves beyond this emphasis that he's had of the one another's, sort of across the aisle, right? Our, our neighbors, our brothers side by side, this local church that we have living next to each other, walking in the new humanity together. And he turns his attention toward the household. That is verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. 
wives and husbands, children and fathers, bondservants and masters, this household relationships. We call this a household code. It's how we should live, the code of conduct that we should live in our homes. And this concept is not exclusively religious by any means. Uh, Codes of conduct, you know, instructions of household behavior, these are historically common, particularly because of the acknowledged centrality of the home to society. And so, even ancient societies would have these codes of conduct for how households should live. And as we'll see today, their households were a little bit broader, even than we would consider our homes today, beyond the nuclear family, um, toward master-servant relationships, some of this, um, these extended um, relationships that they had in that time. We'll look a little bit more closely at that in a moment. So their their households were a little bit broader, but this new humanity, this body of Christ that we've been considering exists within the four walls of your home as well as within the assembled gathering. So his attention sort of turns there. And the point of this text is not so much the relationships between all the people, while we do spend quite a bit of time talking about that. Right? How are husbands and wives to interact? How are children and fathers to interact? How are bondservants and masters to interact? That's important, but why they would interact in the way that they do is really the point of the text that Paul has for us today. So, you can see pretty clearly, and it's, it's one of those texts that just sort of unfolds in its pattern quite simply, for us, that there are three pairs of relationships that are demonstrated in the text. Wives and husbands first, children and fathers second, and then bondservants and masters third. And even visually, you can see right away that the third one just sort of blows up, particularly the reference to bondservants. Consider why that may be in a moment. But those three pairs of relationships… What you'll see is that each one is parallel. They have the party that's identified, the command that they're intended to follow, and then a very important motivation of why they would do that. Now, that's particularly true in, all, in each of these relationships. What you see is that one party is the following or the obeying party, And the other party is the leading, the direction-setting party. And that's important as we begin to understand how how the household really relates to to, to each other. So you have the wife who is the following party, following toward her husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husband, the leading party, loving and not being bitter. Clarify what that means particularly. No motivation toward the leader there. Second one, children, command, obey your parents in all things, motivation. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. Then the leading party, fathers, don't provoke their children, motivation, lest they become discouraged. It really is kind of an attendant implication of the first. And then bondservants, obey in all things, your masters according to the flesh. Here's a manner not in this way, but in that way. A second command, do it heartily with a, with a motivation. A third command with a motivation. So you can see how that one just kind of really expands in this text. 
And then he concludes, masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, motivation, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And what you'll see is that here, this final category where the leader is considered, there's a supreme motivation for the leaders in all three instances, okay? So that's how it's working. I, I think you'll pretty quickly observe that the motivation in all of these is something that has been a theme through Colossians, and that is the lordship of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Children, obey your parents, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Bondservants, do these things, fearing God. Whatever you do, do that as to the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward. Uh, but he who does wrong will be repaid. Well, who repays? The Lord repays. And then masters, know that you also have a master in heaven. So you can see very clearly all of the motivation for why the household should interact in this way is exclusively because of the authority of Jesus Christ and our service to Him. So in most of the cultural uh, household codes, a lot of these relationships would have been quite common to delineate how they would live towards each other. But this code is distinct from all of the other cultural codes for a few of these reasons. What it commands the leader to do is not just to lead, but how he should lead, the manner of his leadership. And then for all of them, whether you're primarily following in this relationship or you're primarily leading in the relationship, both of them are ultimately motivated by their worship for Jesus. And that brings us back kind of to full circle to the, to the middle of chapter 3, where he had said uh, that we put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of Christ who created him, where in the new man, this new humanity, the church, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So while many of these relationships exist, and there are implications to them, in the new humanity, in the new man, Christ is everything. He is our master. We are His servants. So in the question of subservience and authority. There we all sit together as servants of Christ, and He stands above us all as our Master. And that's really the way that this text is played out. Its primary point is that motivation for, once again, as verse 17 said, whatever we do in word or in deed, that everything would be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray, seek God's help, and then look at some of the details of the text here. Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again uh, to hear from you, to look into this beautiful epistle written by one of your faithful servants, by Paul. Thank you for the theological arguments he has been developing uh, through your Spirit. We ask this morning that while well, simple text is ahead of us, it really, the point is already spoken, that now you would begin by your Spirit in, in us a meditation on this truth, thoughtful reflection on our interaction with one another, particularly at home, where perhaps 
the truth of the gospel is tested and under fire more than any other place. Give us understanding of what your word has to say and grow us as you have promised. Continue growing us into the image of Christ. We trust that you will finish that work as you've sworn to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Because of the connection that we had last week with Philemon, this very practical application of some of these truths, remember that Paul sent back Onesimus, this disobedient servant, a bondservant. Onesimus has since been regenerated. He's since been saved and is now a brother. And so the priority of relationships has dramatically shifted from servant to brother, and Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with encouragements, admonitions, uh, even encouraging uh, Philemon to embrace him as he would embrace Paul himself. Because of that previous consideration and the connection to slave or free in chapter 3 and doing everything in the name of Christ, we're, we're going to consider uh, this first since it was last on our mind. We'll look at the bond servants and masters and then move in reverse order toward the more intimate relationships. You can see that they move in that order uh, of nearness. Paul begins near, a little bit less close, and a little bit further away with marriage, children, and then servants. And we're going to go in reverse order this morning because of that consideration. So a few words of clarification. We could spend really the whole time talking about what the Bible says about slavery and servants. And it's a really big topic and certainly a hot one in our culture today. So I just wanted to make a few points of clarification and then encourage you, if you are able uh, to be here Wednesday night, we are going to go ahead and listen to uh, a lecture that develops this more broadly. And uh, I hope that that will be an encouragement to you. If you're not able to make it, uh, let me know and I can send it to you. Um, but a few notes, a few really important notes of clarification. Uh, Philemon and Onesimus and the many other master-servant relationships in the church are dramatically different than the evil that our nation called slavery. It's not the same relationship as what we you know. When we say master-slave, well, that instantly conjures images in our minds of America's tainted past. So an important point is that this, particularly in the Old Testament, it develops into the New, is that this servant-master describes a relationship between two people, a relationship more than, more than a class of people. This describes really the leasing of one's own work, perhaps even to the extent of one's own life in exchange for some provision by the master. So servitude was a social obligation and a very common one of which everybody took part. Everyone historically in the Old Testament and even into the New Age, not our New Age, into the New Testament, to even the Greek and Roman world, everyone was a servant. The question is, to whom or is your service rendered? Right? Who, who is your master? And historically, you have the, even the king is a servant. Well, who's he a servant of? He's a servant of the divine. He's a servant of God. 
and everyone else is a servant of the king. And underneath even all these servants of the king, there are more delineations of service. But everyone is a service. There's various other structures, but we must understand that this is not like a, an incredibly foreign thing that you think of, well, all of these people don't have masters, but this class of people do. Everyone's a servant, and that's important to the context in Colossians because Paul makes that argument. Every single one of us is a servant. Many would read this passage as an accommodation to the culture. You say, this was not right whatsoever, but the Christians, because of the cultural trend, were going to do something immoral. They're going to participate in an immoral practice in order to not cause significant rifts, that they would let some of the theology of the gospel be the thing that stands apart rather than some of these other cultural practices. And one of the things Paul's arguing is like, well, no, we're, we're going to have the theology stand first, and if that has an implication in a servant-master relationship, and it does, then we will live it out freely. So the New Testament here and in Colossians is not accommodating the culture. It stands on the New Testament ethic. It stands in truth as it ought to stand. So how does the New Testament approach this master-servant relationship? Well, certainly they did live in the world, but they were not to be of the world. So what implications did that have on servant-master relationships? How about this? This would be dramatically played out, particularly in a house church situation, that the saint, consider Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon, this man who has, has the house, he is the master. The church meets there. And Onesimus is his servant. And they have that relationship toward each other all throughout the week. But when they gather, when the church is assembled, they, the, the relationship has dramatically changed, has it not? That he's not, he doesn't treat Onesimus as the other, uh, you know, Colossian masters would treat their servants, and not just on Sunday, but I mean, it's played out visibly in front of everybody on, on, a, on a Sunday. That the same place where they had practiced master-servant relationships is the same place that they practiced loving, equal brotherhood relationships. That's dramatic. That's very countercultural. That Philemon, when they gathered together, would greet Onesimus with a holy kiss. No other Colossian master would do that to his servant. Right? That a Jew would approach a Gentile and greet them with a holy kiss. That's not how things were supposed to go. That they would love each other as Christ has loved them. Well, certainly from peer to peer, but not across some of these social boundaries. And so you see increasingly the impact of that text in Colossians 3. It said, no, 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 these three things have all been made secondary. Christ is all and in all. And we'll see that played out in the call to all of the leadership positions. So, bond servants, how should they respond? And, and I think that we are faithful and true to apply this as, as closely as we can would be to our employee-employer relationships. They are not identical, but there is some sort of voluntary service that's being rendered in order for something from the master. 
And so, I, you know, we as Americans particularly love our freedom and our autonomy and our ability to, you know, well, I'm going to move from this workplace to that place, and you're free to do that. But there is some sort of obligation. If you're to be paid, if you're going to be provided for, you will render your work. You will render your service. And these broad characteristics would be true of our work and of our leadership in the employee and employer relationship. So consider that in your mind as we walk through this. Three commands for the bondservants, and they're very strong. He says, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. There's the qualification. They are your fleshly, human masters, not your heavenly, eternal, divine ones, praise God. They are your human masters, though. And so he says, obey in all things. There is this sort of universal nature to their obedience. Now, in each one of these three relationships, the, the one serving is never, Paul never intends for him to, to have this wholesale service to even toward immorality, toward anti-God activity, not in that regard. But anything that they ask that is within the moral laws of God, we would do freely, joyfully. Yes, I will obey. I'll follow. And he says first that that first motivation is not even in a fake way. Not only when they're looking, not with eye service, meaning when the eye of the master is toward the servant, yes, he's working diligently, he's working hard, he's sweating, the master turns away, and the servant kicks back, and he relaxes, and he grabs his drink. And we see this a lot in our workplace too, don't we? Perhaps even practice that at times. And he's saying not in that sort of a way, because remember, you're not a pleaser of men. Your master is not your master. You would do this sincerely because you fear God. Oh, so what, here we go. The, your master, your, your true, the one whom you owe your allegiance to is the divine. And is there ever a time that his eye particularly would not be upon you? No. And so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus. And so this fear of God, it's, it's a... It's a beautiful concept. It's something that even in the months to come that we're planning on delving into, uh, hopefully even into next year, looking particularly at Proverbs and, and how the fear of God plays a very crucial role there. But suffice to say for this morning that we would be motivated by the beauty, by the supreme and lavish generosity and just this abundant generousness as well as this magnificent power, this unparalleled position that God has, all of these things of who He is and what He's done are at the forefront of our minds. And it captivates and motivates and moves us sincerely. Okay, so obey in all things, not ultimately for the Master, but for the Master. And whatever you do, do it heartily. So here's this wholehearted, um, um, whole-souled, all of you is poured into this activity, uh, diligent, disciplined, energetic, of a true service. Once again, why would we work in that way? Why would we give of ourselves in that way to someone who's not ultimately the boss of me? Because we do it to the Lord and not to men. Why would we do it to the Lord and not to men? 
Because who is ultimately the one who gives us our paycheck? Where is our true inheritance? Who is the one that has reserved for us everything, the riches of glory, right? Union with Christ, an eternal home. Who has that? From the Lord we will receive that reward of inheritance. And so we work heartily now in the structures He has set up with joy, with humility, with everything that we have. And then this third one is actually an imperative, and he says, serve the Lord Christ. You see some wrongdoing. This could go either way as far as who the one who's done the wrong is in verse 25. Is it the servant that's done the wrong? Well, Onesimus had done the wrong. That's certainly true. So contextually, I think we're, we're fair to go there. It also seems that as he's talking to the servants, there's an encouragement that ultimately their master is God, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even the master who would do wrong would be repaid as a poor under master. And he says, remember, and this goes back even to our perspective on, on um, this third category, perhaps of, of forgiveness, of how we should interact with even an unrepentant, like a, a, a someone who has done wrong to us and is not confessing, well, we will commit them to the just judge. We will commit them to the master, according to Romans 12. We will give vengeance to the true king. And so in all of this, I think you can see the theme. It's three, it's, he, he delves into it more, he reiterates it, but it's really the, the same heartbeat three different times. Obey in all things because you fear God. Work with everything you have for the Lord because He's the one who has your inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ because the one servant or master who has done wrong is not ultimately for you to decide. It is God who will repay, and He will do so with